Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 133 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me to talk Upgrade this week is my co-host and best friend, Patch. Hey, everyone. This film from writer-director Lee Wanell came out of nowhere to capture the heart of many viewers earlier this year, and it's got just enough of a horror element to it for us to squeeze it in here as this year's Halloween episode, I think. Um, we are going to forego our typical what we've been up to section in favor of jumping right into this conversation. Uh, real quickly before we do that, I just have one announcement though, Patrick. I wanted to let everyone know uh, we have a new patron. Yay! It's exciting for us, maybe not for our listeners. That was really, really good. <laughs> but we need to say a big thank you to a new patron and also frequent Facebook group discussion starter, Jeff Norman. Uh, we really do appreciate the support very much, man, and hope you enjoy that new bonus content that you have available to you, as well as voting in our monthly donor pick polls, which we will... Sorry, you can't control the audience sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we will we will say more about the upcoming donor pick poll at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. All right, let's get after it. Spoiler alert. We are going to spoil Upgrade. Please see this movie before you listen to this conversation because there are things about this film that you need to experience and enjoy, and we'll ruin it for you if you listen to us first. So go rent it. Go check it out. It's definitely worth your time. It's a pretty quick watch. Uh, it's less than two hours, so it doesn't take a big time commitment, and we wouldn't be covering it if we didn't recommend it. All right. Well, we like to get started with one word takeaways, and Patrick, why don't you take us away? Efficient is the word that comes to mind for me when I think about Upgrade. I've actually seen it twice, and I feel like I've really only seen it once because this is a tight 90-plus minute movie. And that usually doesn't speak well of feature films that are 90 minutes or around that mark because they usually indicate that the movie's not really well told, that it was edited too much in some ways. But when I watch Upgrade, I feel like it gets the praise that it deserves in spite of its length. In fact, it almost feels like an extended episode from the Black Mirror universe. Like, I feel like it fits really well. You have this emerging technology, things that could exist in the not-too-distant future, and you combine it with some moral issues, some kind of crazy twists and turns that happen here and there, and I feel like it could fit really well into that world. I mean, we're in... We're out, we're thrown into the story, and we get invested enough into these these central characters, into our central figure in particular, to care enough what happens. And that was really surprising for me. I was glad that it wasn't any longer than it needed to be. I felt like it was just long enough. And it got what it needed to get done in that time frame, and it was completely satisfying for me. Well, that is a great word. And uh, yeah. That is a fantastic word. I think you're hitting it right on the money. Um, my word is upgrade. And yes, yes, I know, I know. Boo. I'm using <laughs> you and those audience effects. Uh, I wish I could choose what was coming out of your mouth right now. Um, I know that using the one word title is kind of a cheat, or maybe it's a big cheat, but 
I'm using it because I totally agree with you, Patrick. And inside baseball means I knew what your one word takeaway was going to be, and I didn't want to copycat. Sure. Um, I agree with everything you just said about efficiency. I think that that is probably one of the qualities that makes this film so, so effective. Um, but I have some things to say about it related to the word upgrade, too. Um, the thing is, this isn't a unique story. We have had films like this before. RoboCop, The Matrix, Limitless, Lucy, the list goes on and on. Films that deal with this type of storyline. But this is very fresh. Um, it's an upgrade, essentially, of this science fiction trope that explores our interaction with new technology. And it's done through this revenge action horror lens. So when we think of an upgrade, it's usually to define something that is now better than what came before it. And for me, that's one of the best ways that I could do or choose to describe this because I think that it is doing this story better than I've seen it portrayed in film before. Now, this film, Patrick, comes from Lee Wannell and Lee Wannell is a, an actor, a writer, and a director best known for his work in the horror world. Okay, Most everything he's done started off and, and has evolved from his partnership with James Wan, going back to the Saw series, and then later the Insidious series, his first actual director credit, his only director credit up until Upgrade, uh, is Insidious Chapter 3, which is a good movie. It's not great, but it's... Okay, it's solid. He also is pretty well known for playing a character in the Insidious series named Spex, who is a lot of fun. Um, he's a goofball. He's kind of com comedic relief. But I certainly did not see this coming. Okay, I, I mean, when I say this hit us out of nowhere, I remember when this film became available for me to screen it as press. And I was like, huh? What? Who? Oh, Lee Wanell wrote a movie and it's. Like, got this, I mean, there's nothing interesting about the poster. It's just a guy's face and a red background. And I was like, yeah, there, I mean, this is, you know, it's just one of probably another, like, low-level Bloomhouse production. Just one of those three-star type affairs, maybe two and a half stars. Nothing special. And what's interesting is Lee, Lee had just written a film that came out earlier this year, uh, the fourth Insidious movie called Insidious The Last Key. And it's terrible. I mean, it's like absolutely in contention for the worst film of the year. It's that bad. Was it this year? Or was that last year? I don't remember. But that's the last thing he did. And so I was a little wary of what Lee Winnell could do. But what happened is a couple people went and saw this film. And I love it when this happens. They came out of it and they were raving. And so slowly that word of mouth praise led to me going to see. I actually took my son. And we had a blast. It was a great uh, daddy-son date day. Of I mean, he he loved it. He thought it was so cool, right, to get to see this on the big screen. And I didn't know what I was in for, so <laughs> thankfully it wasn't anything too bad, um, other than, you know, a couple of brutal kills. But it, it, this film's word of mouth, just the, the engine just started churning and going, and really it has done all its business without any marketing. We've all found out about it from a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, and it has been constantly praised, Patrick. And I I just – I don't know. I, I wonder, do you have any idea why 
this is resonating so well with people? Like, what is it about Wanell's storytelling here that is special? Well, I don't think there's anything special about his storytelling. I think it's that familiarity that you talk about, that the movies that you mentioned are popular. I mean, you have things like Robocop, The Matrix, Limitless, Lucy, all of these movies people liked. They give pretty much positive reviews across the board. You might have detractors here and there, but it's those elements of those movies that exist in Upgrade in its concise form that I think really feels very digestible from an audience point of view. It doesn't feel like a retread. It feels like a reminder here and there. So, oh, yeah, that was like, oh, yeah, it's like RoboCop here. Oh, that's like Limit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost like it's cherry picking the best of those individual movies and others, of course, uh, along with a little, a tad bit of horror here and there. And it's mixing them all together in a familiar type of way that allows the audience to kind of have that security blanket of like, okay, I kind of know what's happening here. I can kind of predict what's happening. And so you're really along for the ride and you're not trying to figure out everything that's going on. It's not that everything is just right in your face. Like, Oh, we're going to tell you what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next because there are a few twists and turns. But I think the overall narrative feels familiar enough to an audience based on those predecessors that it makes it very entertaining and very much a, a really good movie to digest because it's not a retelling. It's a reminder almost of seeing these other movies that you enjoyed going back into it. Watching Upgrade for me, I was reminded a lot of RoboCop and the things that I liked about it. The one thing that stood out to me about RoboCop was not just the guy loses his wife and becomes a cyborg, essentially. Yes, that's the main thing. But the brutality of the way in which things are people, robots, whatever, are killed, mm-hmm. like the way in which death is portrayed. RoboCop, the 1980s version, I haven't uh, I can't really speak for the the, the remake or the, the reboot. But there, there was no apologies when it came to the hyper violence that existed in that. And that's what was really a reminder of me for me was the fact that Upgrade feels like an homage to RoboCop, not only in its main character, but also in the extremities of the violence and the over the topness of the way those things are portrayed. Yeah, Verhoeven doesn't pull any punches in any of his movies. I remember rewatching, <laughs> I was rewatching uh, Total Recall this summer and I was just like, oh my. Goodness gracious, I, d- I didn't even remember how horrific that film was, because all I remembered was the cool sci-fi idea, and it's similar with Upgrade. The film is classified as horror, and a lot of people online have been like, well, why is this horror? This was a big discussion in in the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group uh, this past week. Um, while you were on your cruise, you didn't have to deal with this, but uh, there was a big argument about what was horror and what constituted you know, inclusion in that genre, and so... You know, most people were kind of pointing out there's a lot of subgenres and you can get, you know, different types of horror. You know, Upgrade has quite a bit of body horror with showing us, you know, wires and, you know, intricate electronics that have been woven into the flesh, things like that. And a couple of the kills are also incredibly gory. And so I think that's where the the horror moniker typically might come from for this. And that's it's similar for for Robocop and, and something like Total Recall. Um, you know, I, I think what is really interesting about this film, and one thing that g- plays along with that efficiency or goes kind of in tandem with that efficiency is, I thought a lot about Ex Machina when I was watching this. This doesn't go on the same dramatic 
level or the same tone that that film does because it's not trying to explore the idea nearly as um, philosophically as Ex Machina is. But the low budget and the very, ah, gosh, I mean, the stripped down sets and production value, I think that they actually enhance this. I think that they give it a feeling of that right around the corner sci-fi or that, you know what, down the block in the next big city over the across the bay, like, this could actually be happening, you know, there. I, I did not feel at all like the world of Upgrade was that far away. I mean, we had really cool tech, like the awesome self-driving car, which I wish would come into being, um, despite the fact that it can apparently take over and just take you wherever it wants to take you. Whatever, I don't care. Um, you know, if you have a car that can automatically block the sun for me, I am all for that at this point in my life. So, uh, you know, we had stuff like that, but we have the police drones that have largely taken over for police work. The police force is much smaller now. Uh, that, that seems like an idea to me that is something we're, we're moving towards in reality. Um, we're already doing it in war. So why wouldn't we start doing it in, you know, the police world as well? Yeah. There's definitely something to be said about calling this sci-fi more than horror i think he even calls it sci-fi action more so than horror yes you're getting those extreme moments and some of that gore but that's not what makes horror horror this is coming from a guy who doesn't watch it so that's the extent of what i would define as that's not what makes horror horror this more lives in the vein of sci-fi and action because of what it expresses and the fact that we have a world that's not too far in the future. I think it's that familiarity that really makes it appealing to the audience because we have smart houses that are in our world. Um, there are some self-propelled cars that are out there. So not being too far removed from where we are right now, even though the movie doesn't explore the ideas in it, it hints at those. And I think that that's its big strength is all of these hints of different things, the hint of what the future could be, the hint of how this reminds us of things that we've experienced in the past. Um, and you 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 start with that great relationship between Gray and his wife, these two polar opposites in how they're actually looking at technology. And they're both completely logical like i couldn't side with one or the other because they both without preaching to me make their argument by the way in which they interact with the world around them mm -hmm. you know she comes in saying you know lights on oh gotta order some eggs yeah go ahead and do that for me i'm like oh i'd love to have that right <laughs> like sign me up <laughs> but then you've got this great conversation that she has with him while he's he comes in all excited and he's like yeah, I just fixed the block and the engine and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, I have no idea what you were talking about, which I have no idea what he's talking about either. And I was watching him do it. So you have this great conversation where he is so excited about being a hands-on guy, whereas she's comfortable being a hands-off kind of person. And it really sets the stage for what I think the, the movie plays with is, is this idea of when this technology and the advancement of technology really great and when is it detrimental? And, um, and and I like the subtlety of that. I like the fact that there's not preachiness in there. There's not 
the, the movie trusts us as an audience to build that world and create that ideology with small conversations, with those low budget visuals and things like that. There was nothing that felt very like, wow, in your face. It was subtle and it, it made me feel like I was a responsible audience member at that point. Oh man, such great points. A hundred percent agree. And it's also because the technology is not evil. The technology is not the problem. The robotic arms in his house, that's super cool. Like, I would love robotic arms that I could be like, hey, administer my medicine. But what the movie shows us is how those things can be either taken advantage of or misused in ways that can become detrimental to us. The, the self-driving car is fantastic until you lose control of it. And what Gray is saying is he likes to be in control of his life. He likes to make the decisions and know what he's choosing, which makes it all the more kind of ironic and tragic that he makes this decision to allow himself to, to get in partnership with Aaron in the first place, leading to all of this happening, right? It's totally against what he initially tells us his character would, would do. Um, and of course it costs him in a big way. I, I love their relationship too. And I think, you know, it moves so fast, so fast. I mean, I think I counted, I think it's like a 11 minute mark of the film and the crash has happened and she's dead. And I was like, wow, like that is so bonkers speedy. I kind of wish we would have gotten a little more of them. Part of me, um, part of me is totally okay with it. But um, I do love the establishing of their relationship. I think it's done really well in a very quick manner. Just that one interaction we see and then them, you know, headed off to, to meet Aaron and then trying to go back home. Yeah. I, I think it also kind of points to a healthiness in relationships of, about being being able to have your own thing, being able to have your own perspective and to see things differently and yet coexist. And while she doesn't care really or understand so much at all about gray making cars or, or fixing them up, she knows that it makes him happy. She knows that it's what he does. And so she's okay with that because she loves him. And similarly, he does kind of the same things. He like gives in a little bit to what he would normally prefer because this is something that his wife really cares about. And I, and I liked that. I thought that was a nice relationship. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great visual when he tells her, I need your car because I, well, I need you to give me a ride home in that thing you don't really drive. So there's this really hilarious juxtaposition of him needing technology in order to deliver the thing that is not technologically savvy at all. He's the, the hands-on vehicle that he has to drive to his customer, and then he has to be driven back by the thing that is completely not what he drove. So he goes from being in control to out of control, which really sets the stage. And as much as a part of me would probably like to see more of their relationship, I think the fact that she's killed off instantly obviously gives him agency, but the whole movie's about him. And visually, that's echoed in a lot of the different camera work, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. It is really all centered on Gray and then eventually Gray and Stem. And then you have these tertiary relationships with the detective and with Aaron. But that's pretty much it. It's really Gray. And 
I think there's a little bit of kind of a, a head nod to the fact that he's not his last name or his his name is Gray. It's not, you know, kind of a black or white that he's living in this middle ground of not being when he gets stem put in. He's now not quite human. He's not quite robot. And he fights this whole idea of who's in control. Is it me or is it or is it stem? And I think that all of that's intentional to center on his relationship with the world around him and his relationship with STEM in particular. So I like the fact that we don't linger on that, that our bad guys are essentially somewhat flat because they create more than anything a sense of entertainment value. And so you're given just enough to push the story along, but then it becomes equally as much a little character piece, even though it's not very deep, as it is a whole story in and of itself. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the bad guys because, uh, you know, if, if there's one major weak point to the story, for me, it's, it's, I, I'm, t- I don't know that it's a weak point. I'm a little bit torn on that as well, though. I, I agree with you that I, I didn't want a deep backstory for those characters. I didn't need to know, you know, everything about them. Uh, Fisk, I believe, is the main the main bad guy. I think the actor for him is perfect. He's he's just ah, he's just he may you just want to punch him. Like just looking at him, you want to punch him. Even he's before you little, know, he's just a little dude. He's You're, like a little dude who got yeah, who thinks he's like big bad to the bone and like pushes people around. He, he has this arm gun, so he thinks he's cool. He's Kip. He's Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, that's who I, he is, and he's that guy That's he, yes. with a gun. I mean, this is yeah. what Kip would be if he got mad. Yes, and so, I, you on, know, Napoleon. it makes sense and it fits, but at the same time, I also am like, oh, these guys mean nothing. They're just kind of like, uh, they're just fodder. They're just there um, for the story. Now, again, I, overall, I side on I like it more than I dislike it. Um, but it is a little bit to me, like I, I almost wish there was more to them. And, I, and it's weird for me to say that because um, I think there's a fine line and I don't want too much. So yeah. I'm just being really picky at this point. Well, but I, I'm with you in that there is one moment in the movie that I felt like I was given a bit more than maybe I should have been given. And that was when you have... I can't remember the hacker's name. Is it Jamie? I can't remember the hacker's name. Anyway, she makes a comment after she does her thing, and she says something about a revolution or we have to fight for the blah, 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 which hints at, oh, there's something bigger going on. Who is she fighting? Who are they fighting? Is there a resistance? What is it? But nothing else, at least that I could pick up, is said about that. And to me, uh, that that was that was kind of a – that was a faux pas, I think, from a, from a writing point of view. When you throw that in, you started hinting at something else. I get that you're kind of expanding the world there, but there was no follow-up with that. And I felt like that was kind of like, eh, if you would have left that out, I think it would have been just fine. And that, that kind of that kind of bothered me. Yeah, I you know, I agree. I think that there is – the world building in and of itself is not super deep. Um, no. We're really getting a snapshot view here. I mean, you would like to hope that the police force is a little bit more robust and a little bit more involved when they're doing murder investigations. It's conveniently lacking from what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, just this one detective that apparently is the only person that really is involved at all. 
Um, and, and I think films do that a lot. Searching does the same thing. There's like one police officer and it serves the narrative better. It's a small cast. It's tighter. You get to know that one investigator. I just don't think it's necessarily super realistic, but you know what? That's okay. It works. It makes mm-hmm. the movie move along at a better pace. Yeah. Um, back, going back to that efficiency. So getting back to the story and, and some of the points here, I wanted to bring up something that ties in really well with the hacker, the he, she, uh, we can't judge because uh, she never really tells us what her gender is. We're not supposed to ask. Um, but when Gray is getting STEM unlocked by the hacker, he sees a bunch of people living in this VR world inside of this kind of rundown old office complex, right? And it feels like a small town rundown, super rundown version of the world we might see in Ready Player One. Only... These people are definitely kind of junkies for this tech at this mm-hmm. point. Do you think that we're heading towards this reality? Pun intended. Depending on the type of content that you're being given, that's a yes and no. Um, I work at a job where we're moving into more of the XR technology, VR, AR, and MR. And when it comes to like military training, there's a big appeal for that because it obviously shrinks the client budget. Instead of putting someone in a cockpit of a plane first, they're putting them in a VR headset, getting to look in a virtual world. And so with that regard, I don't think there are very many addictive qualities. But with the fidelity and the amount of creativity that a world can be built inside of VR in particular, I think it has the potential because when you can control, I think open world games are starting to hint at this. When you can control where you go and what you do and you can craft the places that you see, I think that it can potentially lead to an addictive thing as a means of escape. I mean, video games have been criticized as having this kind of quality where you're escaping into a video game world or even movies to an extent, you know, turning off your brain for two and a half hours so you can engage in the world of these fictitious characters. I think anything that has an entertainment aspect to it can become addictive to a point where you're replacing it with your own worldview or own world. VR could probably bring about that. I don't think we're there yet. I think that there's a lot more steps that would need to get to that place because the fact is I don't know of anybody that stays in VR longer than 20 minutes without getting vertigo. (laughs) So it's still a new technology, even as, as long as it's been around. But I think it has the potential just like anything else, like television or movies or video games or anything that has a narrative inside of it. Yeah, I 100% agree with that as well. I think that we are definitely going to have to face off against this as a society sooner rather than later, perhaps not in you and I's lifespan. Um, you know, going by average lifespans, what do we have? 40 years left, maybe 50 if we're lucky. Um, and I think by the end of that, we're going to be really probably pushing up against this is a major problem tech wise. Uh, I see the desire to escape just becoming stronger and stronger with the terrible situations that occur in the world today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's something that is a, a big draw for people to pretend they're not where they are. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, um, there's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the, the thing that, that I've been thinking about lately is this idea of community and how sc- there's, there's the, the criticism about screens and social media that we hear the, the debates going back and forth, like how much screen time is appropriate, what's healthy, what's not, and how the more you get involved in social networking, the more isolated you can become ironically because you're not physically connected to somebody. And I mean, there's, there's arguments for both sides of that. And this isn't the place to discuss that necessarily, but I think that VR in particular has the possibility and the, the ability to isolate someone. I mean, and we see that in upgrade in such a visceral way. The hacker even says, he asks how long have they been in there? Days, weeks, who knows? And I think that we don't hear them talking. And I think that's by design, obviously, because the, the point of the, the scene is with these two and not with them. They become background. But at the same time, there's some intentional or unintentional value of knowing that these guys are not talking, that they are completely living in isolation. There is no community connecting them per se. And I think that VR, not as the cause, but maybe as a tool, can promote that sense of isolation. I mean, when you put on a set of goggles and you're in this world for 20, 30 minutes, I mean, you're in the vastness of this world and you are not talking to anybody. Um, again, I don't have a, a working wealth of knowledge about, you know, the PS4, VR, other other gaming systems to know where that communication comes in. But I know that at least by its very nature, VR tends to to isolate. Yep, I think you absolutely are correct. And, um, you know, I hope that we will have time as a society to kind of learn about this and our behaviors and and manage <laughs> self manage our time spent with this as it grows um but you know a lot of things in sci-fi seem to already start to be coming to pass so maybe it's prescient um only time will tell we don't have our amazing uh hoverboards yet so you know maybe it's off by a few years who knows uh when we when we talk about stem though it, it's such an intriguing piece of tech. Uh, and personally, I enjoy this more than the story of like RoboCop or the story of Limitless because it's another entity that he is interacting with. And everybody makes the comparison to Venom and it's a very good comparison. I mean, Venom is a symbiotic alien being that is a, becomes, you know, part of Eddie Brock and Stem is a, symbiotic electronic being essentially that becomes part of gray trace. So this goes far beyond the fact that Logan Marshall green is basically discount Tom Hardy. Um, for my money, his performance is every bit as good as a Tom Hardy performance. So let that settle in. Yes. I do think that in this movie, he is fantastic. Um, and I like this movie better than venom. I like, I mean, I like them both, but the best part of venom for me, Patrick was the interaction between Eddie and Venom when they talk to each other, when they're struggling to get control or having conversations. And 
just learning about each other and learning how to live together. And that's the same thing that really fascinated me about STEM and Gray and Upgrade. Um, I love the fact that he has to give STEM permission to do the things STEM does. Yeah. That stuck with me um, because, yeah, I don't have a piece of tech in the back of my spine that can do all kinds of crazy kung fu stuff. But it made me think about the things in my life that I essentially, quote unquote, give permission to do things or to affect me um, without these are these are choices that I make. Right. I, I'm risking the consequences that may come with them because I want the reward. And that is essentially what Gray is doing with STEM here. And it's so fascinating. I just love seeing the story play out with two sentient characters versus the man in tech where one is not actually kind of alive. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is that if if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, Gray is ultimately in control until he has to go to battle. So he's told that yes, STEM is connecting the synapses in his brain with the rest of his body. So when the brain says, lift your arm up, STEM is assisting in that. And I want to use that word very specifically, assisting. It's only when he goes into like Uber Battle Guy that STEM completely takes over. And that's what I find very interesting is because, yes, he's asking STEM to take over. He's He's giving up control, but only in those particular moments. So STEM on the other on the other end of that is being very submissive, being very cooperative. So there's a very real cooperative relationship early on in their relationship that he, the very first thing he says is, shut up, shut up, stop talking. And STEM just goes quiet. And then he, he actually makes him be quiet until, you know, until he says not. So we get that really great relationship of saying, okay, they're going to be working together and it's a cooperative relationship as opposed to a combative relationship. They're not trying to fight. They're not fighting each other, at least not initially, which I don't think has ever been done before because when you get tech implanted in you that has some kind of AI, whether you know it or not, that's going to be the battle early on is who's going to win. And um, I like that we didn't get that at first, that we got a cooperative relationship and not a combative one. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, they require each other to live at this point. You know, Gray can be in a wheelchair as an invalid, but he requires Stem's help. Stem requires Gray as well. Stem's nothing. He's absolutely nothing without the human being that he's controlling, you know, in order to get things done. He, he's limited. And so I love that. They have that limitation without each other. So I guess my question, though, is to you. <laughs> uh, right. Shake your head all you want. You got to answer it. Games explore this as well. There's a fantastic video game series called Deus Ex that deals with humans in the near future that are all kinds of augmented. And that's part of like what you do in this RPG is you gain various upgrades to your person, your body. Would you ever, could you ever see yourself upgrading? In some way, augmenting your body for some useful feature that is not part of your God-given structure. 
Well, we do that anyway, and it really comes down to why. If I have to answer that question, I'm going to answer it with another question. Why am I doing this? Is it so I can, quote, learn kung fu like Keanu Reeves as Neo? Or is it because I want to walk again, and this gives me that opportunity to? So with regards to bettering my quality of life, depending on what I define as quality of life, Yes, absolutely. I'm going to use the technology available to help me not only live longer, but live a better life. I don't want to sit in a chair my whole life. And if I have to do that, and if there's technology available that keeps me from having to sit in a chair my whole life, yes, I'm going to explore that. Now, if that technology randomly puts me in a position where I'm doing a wheelhouse to my coworker's face, I probably don't need to take that route. I need to probably find some better tech that's going to be a little bit more docile. I don't need to know Kung Fu to live my life. That's a nice little upgrade. There it is. I'm using the word. But for the most part, I think it comes down to why. Is it for a better quality of life or is it just because you want to have guns coming out of your your wrist that you can pop off here and there? You know, one might be better than the other. I'll let our listeners be the judge of that. Well, I would do it. I'm not going <laughs> to Of course lie. you would. Um, We're not going to be friends if you do. I don't know if I can hang out with you. I'm a creature of convenience and efficiency and productivity, and so I could see myself being sucked into this quite easily. You know, when Aaron is using those contacts when he's performing surgery, those like computerized contacts that are clearly affecting the way that he is able to see in the moment Mm -hmm. assisting him i was like oh man i was like those are so freaking badass like i would gladly take those i mean i got lasik surgery at this point whatever i let you i let you laser my eyeballs so i'll take the (laughs) contact yeah that's even easier i'll do it that might be an interesting uh discussion question this week is asking our facebook group what would you upgrade if you could upgrade one thing what would you upgrade? Would you upgrade your eyes? Would you Ooh. upgrade your arm? I mean, what, With what, what you... functionality? Yeah. 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 I mean, it could be all oh, over the place. Obviously. Yeah. So, so Wednesday. Yeah. Look for that. Look for that this Wednesday. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I definitely would. Um, I, you know, I, I could even see myself, Patrick, being willing to give in to the control aspect of letting something else take over. Um, to accomplish things. And I think that that tells me something about myself. And that's important. I, I thought that was great when watching this, that I could self-reflect on that and realize that that's probably not a good way to feel. <laughs> you know, especially as this movie ends and I'm like, ooh, it's definitely not a good way to feel. But there's an appeal to it. And so it helps me to understand myself more and maybe figure out why I'm thinking that way or why I'm so easily swayed by new technology. Because it can be dangerous, and we we have to guard against that. Well, one of the the best things about this film is the cinematography, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lump in cinematography and and fight choreography kind of together because it goes with the camera movements. The cinematography itself I really enjoy, especially for being such a stripped down, bare bones setting like we were talking about. It's a lot of it's in the dark, um, but the use of color is fantastic. Use of shadows is really, really, really good. Um, but most importantly is, dude, the fight scenes. I mean, 
they make this movie what it is. Okay. So upgrade could be a really cool little sci-fi movie, but they take this thing up a notch into where I think it's headed, which is cult classic status. It's, it's something special that is unique and not like anything else. And it's, that's what the fight choreography is like in the camera here. So what do you think about it? And do you have a favorite fight scene? Well, my connecting point was almost that first fight scene when, when he splits that guy's jaw, um, because that was completely unexpected. I mean, I was getting used to the way in which the camera was constantly locked in on gray, which I think is pretty fantastic because again, we're just, this is his story. This is not anybody else's really his story. It's his and stems. And I love the fact that the camera locks in with that. And that fight scene in particular, I think stands out because it, highlights everything that stem can do and the reaction that gray has to oh my gosh what just happened in that he's both throwing up and at the same time getting kind of excited about it because he's like wow quote i know now he's not saying this but obviously this is the neo quote i know kung fu i know jujitsu and i think that when i look at the choreography and i look at the cinematography I found a, a quote from the director. It says, I definitely made sure to note in the script that the way the characters were moving and fighting was strange and stilted in a way that a computer would fight. And that's very cool that he's conscious of that, that that goes into the stage directions where it's not a robotic set of choreography. It's, it's a dance. And I think that, Good choreography can either make or break a scene. Um, my wife and I watched The Flash, one of the CW shows, the superhero shows, and we contrast that with other shows that use choreography with superheroes and other kind of those types of folks. And there's a difference in the way in which characters on The Flash fight with each other. It's a dance. It's rhythmic. And it's entertaining to watch. And you couple that with either a particular song that's being played or some instrumental music. And I think the same thing works really well here with all the choreography because it feels enhanced, but it feels very concise. It feels very, um, what's the word? I think it means like just, uh, poignant, just very much like, Oh, he's going to go here and then he's going to go here. It feels very much planned out from the very beginning. Like it doesn't feel chaotic. It feels very precise, and that definitely hints at the fact, especially with the fight with uh, the big baddie near the end, why that fight probably stands out to me a little bit more than the first one because of the fact that you've got two enhanced people, robots, that are going after each other, and they're calling attention to the fact that maybe one can't win over the other. And so I thought that the camera work was very, very... Um, intentional with the way that that it that filmed the choreography and the choreography itself was pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's this was the oh my gosh, is this happening right now moment for me in a movie that I love. I when I'm genuinely surprised by something, you don't know it's coming, and and I feel for anybody who watched this movie after it kind of got bigger with the public enough that people were talking about the specifics 
of the camera movement, so you were kind of looking for that. I got to see it without having any clue it was coming. And when he goes down and then and comes back up all robotic-like that first time, it is just, you know, your mind's blown. You're like, what just happened? You know, like he's moving around the scam. The camera movements are, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's a work of art. Like the way that it is, it is shot. It really is. It's artistically brutal and just captivating to see. And I, what I love the most is I love that first fight scene as well as my, my favorite one. Um, both because of the shock of like, this is actually happening right now. And then also because of, um, Marshall Green's facial acting. Like he does so good in this entire movie. Anytime that he's, being operated by stem. I don't know if it's AI working on his body work or if it's actually all him, but either way, it's a perfectly balanced blend of like, you can tell it's a roboticness to it, but his face is 100% clearly in control and, and it's operating at a different frequency essentially. Yeah. And that's what you brought up, you know, like when he's like puking and and being amazed and all of these things are happening and his body is like operating independently, completely unaware of his face and what his face, how his emotions are reacting to the situation. Mm-hmm. It is so cool. And and then the kill, like I, I wasn't expecting it. Like we had not had that level of brutality and violence yet. I mean, we saw some stuff at the um car crash scene you know we see some murder so we know like okay this movie's a little bit dark but wow um that head split that was that was some straight lee wanell out of his saw days stuff right there <laughs> and and it's weird because i liked it i i was like i don't love most horror movie kills but that was a unique one and it, the reason is because of the emotional acting because the way in which gray is not taking well to that and he's freaked out by the fact that he's even doing it is so interesting to me so yeah I, the first one is by far i also love the, the fight at the end with fisk when it's mono mono and both of them are enhanced and it's just super robotic like that's more like a matrix fight yeah and, um, and i think what i loved it what you pointed out with regards to his facial expressions i think that the thing that i noticed was that there's a when he's fighting, there's a sense of stoicism and intrigue in his face. Like he's almost an audience watching what he himself is doing as if like he's watching his own fist move this way and that way. And particularly in that first fight, I think he is incredibly surprised and that could come across as really cheesy and really hokey, but the combination of the really great choreography and camera work make it work for me and feel as weighted as it can be, but very, but very much totally correct. Absolutely. I guess it's that stunt work too. Like I, I I don't know who it's just incredible. And, And I think when it becomes replicated because eventually it will, it won't be as cool because it was as memorable for me as seeing the bullet time for the first time in the matrix and things like that. Like I'll always exactly. remember like, Oh yeah. You remember that movie upgrade when the robotic fighting happened, when Sim took control? Like if I don't remember anything else, I'll always remember that. That's why I say it's really going to approach that cult classic status. 
Um, one other big idea I kind of wanted to just touch on was this, this thought that like the best technology can't stop the human brain, mm-hmm. that we will always have some level of control or intelligence that machines can't replicate or, or take over. What do you think about that? Well, I think that this movie does an incredible job of selling that and then switching it on us. And one of the big things that I saw was that, that I, that I saw was the, was the drones. So these drones sitting in the air, they're being dispatched. And during the murder, it's clear that these drones are going to be photographing and videoing these people because you got the bad guys going, Hey, they're coming. They're going to get us, whatever. Let's make it quick. So we're living in a world where this is part of it. You know, this is not like they're waiting on cops to show up so they can commit a crime. No, they've got surveillance. They've got these high tech cameras that exist. And at the same time, a couple of scenes later, two months later, as a matter of fact, it's it's explained that even the best technology can get thwarted by hackery or by the human creative creativity. And that's something that I think most movies play with when they deal with with AI. What I think is really interesting is the fact that this idea is sort of preached not preached, but it's it's sold all throughout the movie. And then at the very end, if we can just spoil the ending real quick, we see Gray shoot, you know, he's fighting, he's fighting, he's fighting, and he shoots himself in the head. And at that point, at the moment the gun goes off, we're like, ha, see, the humans won. They beat the robot. And then we're like, no, no, you didn't. And I think that was pretty incredible because I think – as humans, we're optimistic. We're like, we're not going to let computers beat us. I mean, it's, you know, Terminator was that way. You have all these other movies. I mean, we're talking using computers to each other, and we know at some point that the computer is not going to come out and strangle us and say, you're not going to do the podcast anymore. Although well, we, we, we hope so. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, computer. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to speak that way. You know, but we are a we are a human race that will always feel at some point superior to the machines that we create and i love sci-fi because it explores what would happen if that wasn't the case most of the time we win in the end but movies like this help us question that and say hmm what if we didn't win what if machines did take over and we couldn't actually fix our problems and i like that I like that I like that it leaves us hanging but doesn't necessarily invite a sequel, you know? Like it's again, it's that black mirror type episode where you're going, mm-hmm. "Okay, just leave you thinking. Let's go have coffee Perfect. and talk about that." Let's not yeah. we, don't, we don't need a sequel. Let's just talk about what we just experienced. And yeah. I think that's that's great storytelling. I couldn't agree more, man. Um oh, do before we move on, I want to know, do you think Stim is evil? Do you equate him to or it to something like Hal? Um, of course, I don't think we've, we've discussed that on 2001, whether or not we think Hal is evil or not. But how do you compare the two? Do you do you see similarities there? 
I do see similarities, but I don't think we have enough information about STEM's background to understand the why. Why is he doing this? I mean, we understand that he wants to be a part of a human. He wants to embody a human. But what's the why? Is it because, like Gray's wife, his life was taken from him abruptly and his conscious was then put into a chip and now it's being transplanted into a human brain? I don't know. I mean, you can make the argument that he's evil because he kills people. <laughs> he uses this human body to kill people and he shoots a not so great cop uh, at the end. But at the same time, I don't know enough about his backstory to know, hmm, maybe he has some justification. Maybe he's got more complexity. Yeah, I think it's all about survival. Uh, you know, when we, the, one of the big plot twists is that we learn Aaron has been controlled by Stim this whole time. Like, that character is a bit of a hit or miss for me as well. It's kind of like your stereotypical genius who's socially awkward and you know, reclusive and doesn't really talk to people and just sits back and creates. Malfoy and with learn, high tech instead of magic, you know, that's what it is. Right. Yes. And we learned that, you know, he's been controlled by STEM this whole time. So it's, it's very intriguing. And I think it's fascinating that STEM has set this all up so that he could evolve. He specifically says that, that that's the reason he did all of this. And that's survival. That's, trying to maximize your ability to be in the world and your impact that you can have on the world around you. And I think that's a very human characteristic and, and trait. Like, I think we all do that, right? Like, we, we all want uh, to be educated so we can make more money or live a, a more convenient lifestyle or, you know, like, we do this in all aspects of our lives. So... Um, I don't necessarily feel, I mean, yes, he makes evil decisions. The way he goes about it is wrong, of course. But I love that the characteristic trait of what Stim is wanting to do and why makes perfect valid sense. And I feel like a human would want that as well. So we can't really hold that against the desire against Stim. Right. Um, we can hold the methods against him, of course, um, for sure. Well, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you wanted to hit on before we move to the old connecting point? No, let's get rocking and rolling there. Cool. Well, for me, I specifically chose the end of the film. And the reason, the and I'm talking like the very, very end of the film. So plot twist has occurred. Big shockers have happened. I'm talking about when Gray wakes up in the hospital asking where Stim is. And Asha shows back up. And for a brief moment, we're a little bit confused. Is this one going to be one of those movies where this whole thing was in his head and he was in a coma because, you know, he got a concussion when he was in a car crash and his wife's really alive and he's imagining it all, blah, blah, blah. We live in a world where that's a real possibility this, this movie could have taken that turn. Thankfully, it didn't. We learn that Gray is stuck inside of his mind in this false reality. And this, to me, this harkens back to that conversation we had earlier about VR users and what we saw. I seriously, I can't get enough of that idea. And, you know, whether it's in the films like The Matrix um, or Inception um, or Ready Player One and exploring this idea of whether we would choose to live in this fake bliss or be 
prepared to accept living in the painful reality of a real world. And I'm sad to say that most days I would probably choose what isn't real. So I would take that pill. I would prefer to not know. Um, and I think that's a very human feeling as well. And for this film, to me, that's what makes it such a powerful ending. Because we're not told that Gray is making this choice. Stim is making this choice for Gray. But Gray doesn't just get revenge for Asha's death. It's better than that. He gets Asha back. She's alive in his mind. And in a way, Stim is providing him something incredible and something invaluable. And it's twisted and it's confusing and it's also kind of sweet. <laughs> and so I just thought it was a phenomenal way to wrap up this story, to give us that conversation piece, like you said, to sit down over coffee and talk about and discuss amongst ourselves, what would we do? And would we be okay with that? And, you know, like I said, I'm here to tell you, there are parts of my life, parts of my history where I would gladly say, give me that imaginary world. And so I love that this movie lets us explore that. And that's why my connecting point was that way. And that's a great connecting point and a great question to ask. I think that the thing that I find different between this moment and the VR moment is the fact that, as you mentioned, there is a choice being made. These people are choosing to live in VR and Gray is not. The other thing is that for these guys in VR, even as deep as their minds might be going – they still have a slight inkling that they're not in the real world. Whereas Gray wakes up and this is his reality. There's nothing telling him that he's dead, that he's in a dream. And I think that's more of the matrix type thing where your mind essentially is reset. You don't have an inkling of where you came from or what real is. So I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to him. And I know you're not making this argument, but I feel like that's, that is appealing because of the fact that you don't have a frame of reference to be from. You know, it's not like I'm saying, okay, I'm going to choose to live in Hawaii because I don't like the weather in Arkansas. As opposed to saying, I don't know what hot summer humidity is like. I only know what it's like to live in Hawaii. That's the only frame of reference. So I'm not making a comparative argument i'm just living my life in hawaii and i think in the same way he's got that same kind of idea where the life that he's living yes he knew his life with stem but now it's it's gone but he's not making that choice it's a life that he's now being given and he's not he doesn't know that it's real or fake and so it's but it's good coffee table conversation right there that's for sure podcast conversation or, you know as, as we're doing right now podcast conversation well for me i think that i gravitated towards stem as a character and i love his first and i'm putting air quotes appearance because we never see stem stem is a voice and that's the reason why i think he is my connecting point is the fact that he's he's voiced by this guy named simon maiden who i have no idea who this is um, he's an Australian, so obviously he's got props for me for not having an Australian accent in in this uh, this role that he's playing. But I love the similarity in tone and inflection that I get between 
stem and how from 2001, as we mentioned before. I don't think that's unintentional. I think that calming voice, that kind of what are you doing, Dave, kind of tone and inflection, he never yells. He's always speaking very smoothly and calmly like he's in control. And so the moment that he gets rebooted, that he is severed from any connection with Aaron so that he can't be tracked, that was a scary moment, man. It's like he's going, he's not mad when he says, or he's not demanding when he says, I'm taking over now. You have no control anymore, Gray. He's saying, no, you said sever the cords or whatever the, the phrase was. I now have complete control. At no point does his voice waver. And to me, that's how all the way through. Um, I didn't see the twist coming because, yes, I'm in that group of people that just is completely naive. And I'm proud to be in that group because it makes movies that much more you know, entertaining for me. But I know that I didn't trust him from the beginning because of that connection that I had with Hal as a character. And it made the reveal at the end that much more satisfying. In the end, I think Stem wants to survive. He wants autonomy. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Just like with Hal, he's willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill the mission. And I think that there is a parallel here. I think that's what's happening in some ways. And I think that's fantastic that we have that kind of of parallel and that kind of connection. And it goes back to what we talked about before about how you have these hints at different things. And I think this is a big hint right here that stems a lot like how maybe not completely the same, but he's got some similar motives. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And I guess uh, your praise for stem is a good indicator that maybe you are a little bit predisposed to uh, taking this jump when the time comes. <laughs> Up, I Stan. think Stim could, uh, yeah. What? what? I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is good. I'm so glad we got to cover this one. I know many of our listeners love this film, and I think that they're going to enjoy this discussion. We hope you did. Um, but yeah, Patrick, where can people find you to continue the conversation with you online if they would like to engage with you further? Well, I'm back from the mighty Gulf of Mexico. And so if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. Be sure and at me or tag me. If you want me to be involved in the conversation or you have something really fun that you want to share, I'd love to uh, conversate with you. Next week, we've got another great biopic coming up. I'm really excited about it. About it. Uh, Terrence Malick plays the mighty Freddie Mercury in the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. So be sure to tune in for that uh, next week. And if you would like to continue talking to me anywhere online, you can do so through Twitter at Feelin Film. That's the best place to contact me. You can also find me and Patrick both active in our Feelin Film Facebook discussion group. That's where all the magic happens. We have a large group of folks, cinephiles of all types, conversating every single day about movies and the things that they love. We would absolutely enjoy having your perspective in the mix as well. You can find links to that in the show notes, on the website, or just by doing a little search on Facebook. You just got to answer a couple quick questions so we know you're not a bot, and we will approve it, and you'll be in. Next week, we also will be starting our voting process for the November Donor Pick episode. And that is where our patrons, those donors on patreon.com slash feelin' film, that's where you can go to 
become a supporter. Um, those people will be voting on one of five films. And this month, the theme is going to be movies about cooking. And so the choices we are going to offer are, I lost my piece of paper, but it's okay because I remember them. Chef, Burnt, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Ratatouille, and Julie and Julia. Those are the five films. So our voters will be making their choices over the course of about 10 days. November the 1st to the 10th is when that runs. And then towards the end of the month, right around Thanksgiving, we're timing that out perfectly, I think, we'll drop that mini-sode for you. So if you'd like to become a part of that, as I mentioned, for $1 a month, you can gain a vote. And it goes up from there. Just visit patreon.com slash film and check it out. Well, thank you for listening. We do appreciate it and we love all of you and we are glad that you give us the opportunity to have these conversations for someone to uh, appreciate. Uh, Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film. Feeling film.